as a, uh, just a quick reminder, next week, uh, next week we will uh, not be meeting in here. We'll be meeting in the main sanctuary, in the main building. We'll have an all-church worship service, uh, 10.30. It will get pretty, uh, you know, it's, seating is, is a, it's plentiful there, but it may be a little bit difficult to, to navigate in there once it gets crowded. So I encourage you to come early and, and sit towards the front and, and get a good seat. That's what your offering envelopes are for. It's not for today. It's for next Sunday's uh, all-church worship service. So please uh, make note of that. Um, Today, we're going to be in our last week for now of this series called uh, Countercultural until January. It's at the last in this hard teachings series as we uh, talk about the last part of uh, what we're going to be talking about here. And then as we move forward to Thanksgiving and Advent and into the new year, we'll pick back up with the Sermon on the Mount. But I wanted to um, just kind of briefly mention about uh, a typical dinnertime conversation. When I was a kid, when I was growing up, there was my brother, older brother Terry, myself, uh, my mom and dad, and, and usually um, as we would sit around eating, uh, I would typically, because I wanted to listen to a baseball game on the radio or go do something else, uh, I would tell my parents that I, I, I'm done eating my rice. It would always be rice. Say, I'm done eating my rice, and they would say, no, you need to finish eating uh, your rice. And I said, I don't want to eat. I'm full. I've had enough. And they said, you barely ate anything. You need to keep on eating. And I would fight with them and I would argue with them. And then they would pull out this trump card that probably many of your parents pulled out when you didn't want to eat. They would say something like, there are children, don't you know, in other parts of the world who don't have food to eat. Therefore, you need to finish what's on your plate. And so to me, the thought of children who didn't have food was compelling enough for me to finish eating my rice, even though I didn't quite understand the connection and how what I was doing there in Virginia at a dinner table was actually helping people across the world. But as I pondered that question, one of millions of life's uncertainties for a five-year-old kid, it got the job done and I ate my rice. And later my brother said, it's not about, it's not that you're helping them. They're not getting food by you eating, but it's teaching us. Mom and dad are teaching us to be thankful for the food that we have. And so we grow up, I grew up having this appreciation for the food that was put on the table. But they're helping me to understand the value and the worth and the blessing of food extended far beyond the dinner table. It would be when I would come home from school and the first question they would ask me is, have you eaten? Did you eat your lunch? And then they would say, what else do you need to eat? There was ingrained in me this idea that food is a gift. It is a blessing. It's a privilege, and you need to embrace it. You need to appreciate it with everything that you have. And then you go to college, and the first phone call I got, the first thing that they asked was, are you eating that food okay? They don't have Korean food at the dining hall. I know that, so are you eating okay? Are you eating enough? Are you digesting it okay? What do you want mom and dad to send you so that you could eat your home cooking, even while you're away from home. And so growing up, I always had this sense, and you probably did too. If you've been away from your parents for some time, usually one of the first questions they'll ask you is, are you eating okay? Are you eating enough? And how can we help you to eat better? Because our parents know, and we grow up knowing, that food is a gift, and it's a blessing, and it's a privilege, and something to be valued and appreciated. That became so ingrained in both Olivia and me that the first question uh, I ask when I see Manny and Elijah when they come home from school is, did you finish your lunch? Did you eat your grilled cheese sandwich? Did you eat your apple slices? And if they say no, then we get all flustered. We worry, oh my gosh, our kids are not eating. They're going to, something is going to happen to them. And so we grow up having this sense that food is all important. And then we live in America. God bless America, the land of the buffets. 
and the glutton capital of the world where uh, I, we were talking with someone over uh, a breakfast yesterday at Chick-fil-A. We have one brother in our congregation who at least twice a week eats all-you-can-eat Korean barbecue at one restaurant on Colonial Drive. We're like, man, this guy is crazy. Sometimes he even eats three times, and probably he'll be going there today with some of you to eat. We are the land of the buffets. We are America, where food is not just a necessity. It has become a cultural obsession. We don't just eat food here. We talk about food all the time. We yelp about We even talk about food to people we don't know. Right? We go on Yelp or Urban Spoon and tell people this food was amazing. We take pictures. I was talking with our resident hipster, Daniel Kwok, our youth director, and I asked him, what do you think is the, most, most, uh, the, the topic that is most frequently photographed on uh, social media and without missing a beat? He said, food. And then he said, outfit of the day and something else and something else and something else. But food, haven't we all been guilty of letting the world know about what we ate for lunch or for dinner? Or what other people ate for Not only do we post about it, we talk about it, we eat it, uh, we watch TV shows about it. Right? We watch shows like uh, Iron Chef or Top Chef or whatever it is. And I don't even like any of these shows, but when Olive is watching it, I get mesmerized by it. And I love watching these shows about food. We are a nation and a culture that is obsessed with food to the point that if we skip a meal... We go to catastrophic language to not only say I'm hungry or not only to say I'm starving. We say I am dying. I'm going to die because I didn't eat lunch today. And some of your stomachs are going to start growling in just a little bit. And then you're going to think, oh, my gosh, if I don't get some chipotle into me now, I'm going to die. I'm going to pass out in worship service today. We are obsessed with food. So in a culture that teaches us the value of food that teaches us that it is a blessing to have, that teaches us that there are people who are going every day without food, why in the world would we go a day or a meal without eating food? Can this be one of the most countercultural things that we could ever do? In a world that tells us that life is food and that food is life, to say, I will no thank you, withhold from eating food. That's what Jesus said to do. What are we doing? We're going to talk about fasting today. I know some of you are like, dude, fasting? Are you serious? Maybe for the, like, the three of us who actually do that, that might be a relevant message. Or some of you are like, dang, I brought a friend today. Uh, maybe not the best day to have brought them. Maybe we'll kind of sneak out while we pray. Too late. We've already prayed. Everyone's eyes are open. We're going to talk about fasting, and I want to show you how important and what it can do for us as we look into these three short verses that Jesus uh, gives to us from the Sermon on the Mount as it relates to this forgotten yet important idea. Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. Again, this is going to be the last section that we read. Um, This is the last section that we read on the Sermon on the Mount before we pick back up in the Lord's Prayer. We're going to kind of dissect the Lord's Prayer as we start the new year to kind of kickstart our prayer lives. That is Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. This is God's word. Jesus talking to his people, his disciples, his followers, people that we would consider Christians. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, 
they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your Father who's unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This is God's word. So what is Jesus saying here? I think if we ask, um, if we take a, a random survey, not a, a not random survey, but if we take a survey, an unscientific survey, and said, how many of you here fast regularly, raise your hand, we probably wouldn't get too many people. And if we pressed out a little bit and say, why don't you fast? And probably some of us might give one or two answers. One, I just don't think it's that important. Not that important. I've got a nice, beautiful figure and I, I like food. And so I don't think I, I, I see the need to eat. And then other, others of us would say, well, maybe I, I feel like I should, but uh, I, I just don't want to. I like food too much and I can't go uh, a day without having my, whatchamacallit, or this or that, or my favorite food. And, and we love food. And so what I want to do today through the next you know, part of our time is to show why it is important and relevant for all of us and why it's necessary for us to fast, even though we don't want to. Okay, three things. First thing, here's the first thing. Um, fasting is hard, okay? We, we, I, I'll give you that. But just because fasting is hard doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, Okay. Uh, when you think of fasting, here's a simple working definition. A guy named uh, Donald Whitney says, fasting is the voluntary abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. Okay? So you know, some people might say, well, um, I'm fasting, but really what you're doing is dieting because you're doing it for the sake of health or you're doing it for the sake of a physical cleansing or a detox. Um, that's not what fasting is, not in a biblical sense at least. It's not saying you're, you're withholding food for um, kind of a hunger strike or you're doing it because you want to have a glistening uh, face or anything like that. You're doing it for a spiritual purpose. The voluntary abstinence, abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. Uh, some of you have fasted before. Uh, maybe it was, uh, we have weeks of fasting and you fast after 4 p.m. We fast dinner sometimes. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've been to our fasting and prayer retreat. We uh, have done this every year, past three years. Uh, first three days of the new year, we spend uh, three days fasting at a retreat. We're not doing that this year um, because New Year's Day falls on Friday and just it would, it would work out weird timing-wise. But some of you have done that, and, and at the end of it, you're like, you know what, that wasn't that bad. But while you're going through it, you're like, holy cow, this is really bad. It's really hard. Maybe uh, some of you are, are in a habit of fasting either a meal a day or a, a day out of the week. Some of you fast in between lunch and dinner every day. Probably a lot of us do. Maybe not, not all of us. Some of us snack during those times. And, and maybe for some of us, our fasting is limited only to when we sleep. But however you cut it, here's the reality. Fasting is hard. It's hard. And your stomach tells you that it's hard. And people tell you that it's hard. And they say, wow, you're fasting. That's really difficult. When do you get to break your fast? Fasting is hard. And Jesus knows. In fact, he fasted for 40 days. You remember this. He fasted for 40 days, and throughout the length of it, there was temptation coming at him. Jesus knows that fasting is hard. But he also says, hey, just because it's hard doesn't mean you don't do it. If you look at what he says in, in verse 16, when you fast, don't look somber. Verse 17, but when you fast, put oil on your head. He's, it, it's clear just in, in grammatically speaking that he's saying not if you fast, if you choose to fast, if you happen to fast, but when you fast, the assumption is that you're going to fast. Right? So Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to fast. The other, the other clue contextually is this comes in the third of a series of three teachings on spiritual disciplines. And each of them begins when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. 
here's what Jesus is saying. As basic as giving is to the Christian life. We all give, right? As basic as giving is to the Christian life. As basic as prayer is to the Christian life. So too is fasting. So Jesus, I mean, because we live in such a culture obsessed with food, fasting is so countercultural. But to the culture of the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to fast. You're going to give, you're going to pray, you're going to fast. That's par for the course of a child of God. You're in the kingdom. Here's a spiritual discipline that you're going to engage in. Uh, you're going to fast. But again, it's hard. And so a lot of people, because it's hard, they say, I'm not going to do it. But where would we get in life if that was the response to everything that was difficult in life? You see, we live in a culture that obsesses not only with food, but over comfort. Be comfortable. That is the greatest. And the reason why you work so hard in school is to get into a good college. Why do you work so hard in college? To get a good job. Why do you want to get a good job? So you can make a lot of money. Why? So that at the end of the day, you can be comfortable. So that you don't have to slave the way that few uh, previous generations did. Just be comfortable so that you can have your yacht, you can have your nice life, you can have your waterbed or whatever it is so that you can be comfortable. Comfort is the God of our age. And a preacher in Dallas, Matt Chandler says, if comfort is God, then anything that causes suffering is seen as a devil. And so we avoid it at all costs. If we idolize something, we will always demonize the opposite, Right? So we idolize our comfort. We demonize anything that pushes up against comfort. And so fasting is an extremely countercultural thing because it makes us uncomfortable. But again, it's doing hard things that causes us to grow, right? You know, anyone who has gone through life who doesn't do hard things, there's a difference between growing up and growing older. You know this, right? There's a, I remember talking with a couple. They're not, they're not part of our church, but I remember talking with a young couple they were in their early 20s. They got married in their teens and had a, had a, had a little baby boy. Um, and as they were uh, talking to me, uh, the, the uh, husband said, you know, here's my hopes. Here's my dreams. Right now, this is what I'm doing. But this is what I want to do with my life. I want to become the best dad I can be. I want to become the best husband I can be. I want to this, have this kind of a job and make this kind of a money and live in this kind of a place out in this kind of a city. And he had all these hopes and dreams. As, and he would talk to me as we would go play basketball. And then I would talk to his wife, and she would say, I've had it up to here with my husband. This guy is such a little baby. I know we got married when we were young. We made mistakes. We failed. We messed up. And our child reminds us that we need to grow. But every time my husband sees our child, he doesn't feel the need to grow. He was a child when I married him, and he's still a child now, even after we got married. He doesn't want to do anything. He works his eight hours, and then he comes home completely oblivious to the fact that he's got a wife and a kid. He just goes and plays basketball seven days a week. Doesn't lift a finger at home, doesn't do anything. But he talks about all these things that he wants to do, all these visions, dreams, hopes he has, but he doesn't lift a finger to do anything. He was a kid when I married him, and he's still a kid now. Because his unwillingness to do things that were hard caused him to never grow. Are you growing in your relationship with God, y'all? If you're not, okay, if you're not, can I say that it's probably because we're not putting ourselves out in a place to do things that are difficult, that stretch us out of our comfort zone. We can want all we want to grow, but unless we put action and do things that are difficult, we're not going to grow. It's not hard to come here on Sunday morning. It's not. 
You might think it is, but compared to what the rest of the world has to deal with sometimes, this is not, this is not hard. And you put yourself out there to go the extra mile. You will be as close to God, as intimate with God as you want to be if you're willing to put in the time to do it. And so Jesus says here, fasting, I understand that it's hard. But he says, when you fast, there will be a reward from your father. You do it right. Just because it's hard doesn't mean we don't do it. Sometimes the harder the thing is, the greater the reward may be. I used to work, my first, um, my first real job was at Chuck E. Cheese when I was about 17 years old. And uh, one of the jobs, one of the roles that I had was I was the game room attendant. So what that meant was I would roam around the game room with a broom, would sweep up any trash that there was. And then these, uh, if ever a game was broken, kid would say, this game swallowed, skee-ball swallowed my quarter and I need to get it back. And so I would have the keys and I would open up the ski ball and I would open it up and see where the coin got stuck. I would take it out. I would give him a coin. And because I was a nice guy, I'd give him like three extra coins. He'd be like super happy. I'd close it. Then I would reset. And then just to make sure that the game was working, I would play the game. You're allowed to do this. You're allowed to do that. And after a while of playing the games, (laughs) some of you are going to start applying to Chuck E. Cheese now. Watch. After a while of playing the games, I became a master of every game in the game room at Chuck E. Cheese. I was the bomb diggity. You know the, the game, uh, the bowling ball game, where it's like on this kind of a like sign curve, and you have to roll the ball and get it to stop right at the thing. You can't push it too hard, or else it's going to bong, come back, and you lose all your tickets, and you push it too little, and it won't get there, and it'll come back to you. I was a master. I could win that game every time without cheating. So good. And a game where you've got this like metal metal like spoon thing, and you've got to turn around this thing that's, that's spinning around, and I was awesome at all of these things. <laughs> but I realized something. I realized something. The harder the game, the greater the rewards that came out, the tickets that come out of the game. Now, you can do your ski ball and get your 50 points all you want. You get one ticket. But if you go for it and you do the hard, you, you try for the 100-point time every time, have 100-point hole every time, streams of tickets never ceasing. <laughs> it's amazing. The greater, the harder, the harder the task, the greater the reward. And so it is with fasting. Do you know the reward of God? The first thing Jesus says is just because it's difficult, just because it's hard, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Second thing that we see, second thing that we see, the reason it's hard. Fasting is hard because it is a defiant rebellion Boy, this is good. Uh, against the status quo. For those of you who don't know Latin or for those of us who are young, status quo basically means the way things are. Fasting is a defiant rebelling against the way that things are. You look at the way things are. Are you disappointed with the way something is in life? Maybe in light of what happened this weekend, with terrorist acts, you are, I, I, I do not like the world that we live in. And I don't want to see it stay this way. So what are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? I, you know what? I don't, like, uh, I don't like the situation between me and my husband at home. I don't like it. So what are you going to do? My relationship with my friend, we're, we're not on very good terms right now. And we haven't spoken for a while because there's this unspoken tension. So what, what are we going to do? I don't like where I am in my relationship with God. 
I want to be at a better place. So what are you going to do about it? You know, I, I said this before, but this phrase that was like the phrase of the year two years ago that I really have come to despise <laughs> when people say, it is what it is. So my relationship with my friend, yeah, we're, we're not on good terms. What are you going to do? I don't know. It just It is what it is. Let it be. It's this like sense of resignation that things cannot change. As a, as a child of God, that's not the way it ought to be. If you don't like the way something is, David Wells, I love this quote, he said, prayer is rebelling against the status quo. The very least thing that you do is you begin to pray about that situation. You're rebelling, saying, I don't like the way things are. But if I could add fasting is a defiant rebellion against the status quo. Jesus says there's certain things, disciples, they tried to pray out this demon when they came back from the Mount of Transfiguration, tried to pray out this demon, and they said, we couldn't do it, Jesus, what gives? And he says, some things can only come out by prayer and fasting. John Piper said, fasting is the physical exclamation point to your prayer. Are you praying and you feel like, man, there's something more, there's something not giving, there's something more that I want to do? He says, try adding fasting to your prayer because there's a defiant rebelling against the status quo when you fast and say, this much, God, I want the thing that I'm praying for. See, more than your songs and more than our promises and more than the the things that we tell God, it's when we physically begin to feel the, the longing within our bodies we're saying, God, this is how much I want you more than I want food. This is what, this is how much I want the thing for which I pray. Have you known a longing like that? Maybe that's what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The point you feel it in your body and you feel it and it, it, it changes the way that we live and it rubs up against the way that, that, that we're doing life and it shapes us and it changes us and it molds us saying when you hunger and thirst for God in that way the promise is that you will be filled. Do you know that kind of a satisfaction from God? Or are you constantly longing for a carrot that you can never catch? Fasting is the exclamation point to that prayer that we're praying for, to say, this much, God, I want you. Maybe you want to see an unsaved family member come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus. Maybe God is calling you, and it's not that he hears you better when you pray with fasting, but it is a sign of your desperation. And when we're desperate, God's mercy flows to those who understand that they're desperate. It was a woman who was desperate for the healing of her daughter who said, Jesus, just come and heal my daughter. And he said, I don't give, we don't give crumbs. I'm sorry, we don't give food to the, we give food first to the children of Israel because she was a Syrophoenician, a Canaanite woman. And she said, yes, I know that, but I believe that even the crumbs that fall from the master's table are enough to satisfy me. Are you desperate for God in that way? Do you long for God in that way? So many of us have these desires that we have. I, I want to see this person change. I want to see this addiction broken. But how much do we long for that? And how much do we want that? You see, what fasting does is it reveals the degree for which we hunger for something that we're asking God for. Do you long for God in that way? Or have we become okay with just being okay. Francis Chan, he says, you know, some of us are lukewarm. Right? Jesus says in Revelation 3, don't be lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. 
Some of us are lukewarm. And probably his most famous sermon he's ever preached, this kind of put him on the map and thrust him into the Christian celebrity blogosphere. It's called, you're lukewarm and you're loving it. Uh, You're okay to come to church. You're okay to be involved in a house church or a small group. You're okay even serving God and teaching, but there's no longing for God in your life. And you're okay being comfortable in your spiritual life. And you're lukewarm and people say you're lukewarm and you think that, yeah, I'm lukewarm, but the reality is you're lukewarm and you're loving it. I don't don't need to change. I'm okay living this way. No urgency. Okay coasting along. Are you okay with being okay? Are you lukewarm and loving it? Because there are a lot of people, you know, Jesus says you'll know a tree by their fruit. The root will determine the fruit. And if you've got the root of Jesus Christ in you, then there will be fruit of a Christian life. Our lives will be changed. There are many people, Jesus said, who are going to stand before me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things for you? And he's going to say, away from me, I never knew who you were. It could very well be that a lot of people in evangelical America who sit in church Christianity are not going to be in heaven at the end of it all because they have not genuinely given their lives to Christ and allowed his lordship to take over. We're lukewarm and we're loving it. We're okay being okay. But what fasting does is it reveals a longing within our hearts to say, God, more than I want food, more than I want my steak, more than I want my sushi, more than I want my wine and cheese, I want you. I want the thing for which I pray. That's what I long for more than anything else. It's a replacing one hunger with a greater hunger. It's replacing a physical hunger with a spiritual hunger. It's, so my little one, Elise, our daughter, has... Uh, really bought into this buffet culture. Not that she eats a lot, but she likes to eat a little bit of everything. And so as soon as she wakes up in the morning, she wants a bottle of milk. And so we give her a bottle of milk. And, and once she drinks her milk, she's happy. She's not crying anymore. She starts romping around the kitchen looking for something to eat. And so she pulls a granola bar off the shelf and she brings it over to whichever parent is awake. And she says, open, open. And so we'll open it for her and we'll give it to her and she'll take a bite of it. Then she'll put it on the floor and then she'll go into another part of the kitchen, open up the pantry and she'll pull out a thing of fruit snacks. And then she'll take it to the parent and say, open, open. And so we'll say, no, 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 Alicia, it's too early to have this. And she'll get mad. She'll put it down and she'll go look and she'll bring some cereal over, peanut butter cereal. And she'll say, open, open, right? I want some crackers, caca. And so we'll open it up, give it to her. And we'll say, this is got to stop (laughs) this insanity we need to find one thing that she likes and so we found the thing that she likes she likes bananas and so one day true story this really happened she was eating cheese right one bite of cheese and then she doesn't want cheese anymore she's eating cheese and we say okay mom and dad's got to get some rest this is insane it's like 5 30 6 o'clock in the morning let us go back to bed we'll give you a banana so we say elise banana you hold it and so here's what she's doing while she's eating her cheese so a normal person would swallow their cheese, would grab the banana, say thank you very much, and would eat their banana. But she, as she's chewing her cheese, sees the banana, spits out the, uh, the cheese on the floor, grabs the banana, has a big old smile, and then she goes running away from the mess. What she's saying is, I want that banana. <laughs> I want that banana more than I want the cheese that is in my mouth. I want banana more than I want cheese. That's a sign of what we're saying when we're fasting. 
We're saying, God, I want what you have. I want more of you. I want this addiction to laziness to be broken. I want this addiction to cigarettes to be broken. I want whatever it is. I want my unsafe family member to be safe. I want those things. And I want you more. I want that more than I want food. So I'm willing to give up that food in order that I can have what you have for me. God, would you, would you be gracious to me? That's what we're saying when we fast. Fasting reveals a hunger for God within our hearts, within our soul. And this is why we fast. But fasting does something else. The other thing that it does is it restores a hunger for us. Maybe some of us are like, man, you know what? I, I need to hunger after God. Well, you're right. I don't hunger for God. I'm okay. And even as you're talking, I'm okay. Right? Maybe for a second I felt bad about you know, where I'm at spiritually, but at the end of this service, I'm going to go out. I'm going to live the same way I want to live. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe others of you feel like, you know what? I need, I need more hunger for God in my life. Fasting not only reveals that hunger, but it can restore a hunger that was lost. How? Can I tell you that the reason many of us who have tasted and seen the beauty of God and no longer hunger for him, it's not because he stopped being appetizing or beautiful. Because we've, become full on other things. That's why we tell our kids, don't eat ice cream before you eat dinner. Because even though ice cream is a good thing, it will ruin our appetite for the better thing. Have your appetites for God been ruined because we've been satisfied with other things? Because we've been feasting at the table of the world, of video games, of TV shows, of comfort and convenience. Feasting at the world's table so that when we come in here on Sunday morning, we're not that hungry for God. Is what we've done on Saturday night keeping us from longing for God on Sunday morning? Have we feasted at the table of the world so much that we're no longer able to hunger for God? It's in times like this that God may be calling us to fast in order to restore and recover a hunger for God within our own hearts. Sometimes it's not hunger. A lot of times, I'm sorry, sometimes it's not food. A lot of times it's not food. Sometimes this is why I stopped playing fantasy basketball because it was taking up so much of my time that it was consuming my thoughts. When I would worship God, we lift you higher, I'm thinking about that guy who was jumping higher to dunk a basketball. Like, I, I can't think that way anymore. Maybe for others of us, it's, it's something else. That so much of your time is spent on and so much of your money has gone into. Maybe you need to stop talking to girls for a period. Maybe you need to stop talking to boys for a period. Maybe you need to stop being on social media. It's not just something we do during detox or Lent. But if that hunger, that longing is missing, maybe you need to recultivate that through fasting the things that rob you of a longing for God in your life. I know what these things are in my life. Again, I, I, I can't escape this quote that Keller says, the thing you're most defensive about is the thing that's most destructive to your hunger for God. Be defensive about it saying, you know what? It's, I can handle it. It's not that bad. I need it because it's my way of bonding with my friends. 
I need it because if I don't do it, then uh, none of my non-Christian friends are going to hang out with me anymore. We can, we can sugarcoat it all that we want, but if it's something that God is putting a finger on and we're defensive about it, that's the thing that's going to be destructive to your hunger for God. Fasting is hard. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. The reason it's hard is because it's a rebellion against the status quo, a defiant rebellion. Say, enough is enough. Are you sick and tired of being only longing but never receiving? Constantly wanting but never satisfied in him. Could it be that God is calling you to recover this lost artifact? Yeah, every, in every generation, fasting has been, uh, has been a sign of a soul's thirsting, longing for God, of a cultural longing for God. And where fasting is lacking, a culture's hunger for God is lacking. Could it be that our cultural obsession with food goes hand in hand with our culture's decreased hunger for the things of God? The last thing that we see, last thing, because fasting is hard, we have to remember why we do it. We have to remember why we do it. With everything in, in, in life that's challenging, that's hard, and we need to remember why we do it, especially when we do the things of God. Right? Some of us are doing a lot for God. Right? Some of us are spending every day uh, in personal worship, reading the Bible, praying, some of us are, are uh, serving different ministries, doing a lot of stuff. And if we forget why we do it, if we're focused on all the things that we're doing, we're going to burn, burn out. We're not going to be able to do it for a long time. We're not going to find joy as we do it. We're always focused on what am I doing. See, this is what the Pharisees were focused on. Hey, they're focused on their fasting, which is why their faces were disfigured. Because it's hard. And they're thinking, oh, look at all that I'm doing, all that I'm giving up. If you're focused so much on what you're giving up, uh, you'll never see the reward of God. But every time, you know, throughout, you see this in, all throughout the Bible. The people who sacrificed, did hard things, they always remembered why they did it. So David's mighty men broke through Philistine lines and went into en- enemy territory to get a cup of water. Because David simply just one, one day was talking out loud, man, water on the other side of the Philistine camp is really good. And these mighty men said, okay, your wish is our command. And they broke through enemy lines, brought this water back. Why do they do something so difficult? Because they remember the one for whom they did it. Jacob, he fell in love with a girl named Rachel. It says he worked seven years before he ever got her. That's a long time. But it says, and I think uh, Genesis 29, it says, Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, but it seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Because he remembered why he did it. It wasn't this incredible sacrifice. He remembered the one for whom he... Jesus talks about this man who was digging in a field and comes up against something. He digs, digs, digs and finds this amazing pearl, treasure hidden in a field. He's like, oh my gosh, this is the stuff that's going to change my life. And he puts it back in. He buries it up. He goes and he sells everything that he owns. You think that's not hard? That's crazy. Everything he had, he gave it all away so he could take the money and buy that field because he found in that field something better worth giving up everything for. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is that treasure hidden in a field. And when we lose sight of that, we lose sight of the beauty of Jesus. And everything that we do is going to be difficult. And so a lot of times, that's what we do, isn't it? 
When we're fasting, we focus on the food. Think about, oh, I could be eating that. Domino's pizza drives by. Man, I could be eating that pizza. Your friends come to the office and they bring Chipotle. Oh, man, that, that looks so good. I don't care about the salmonella poisoning other people got. That looks good to me. People bring their lunch to school and you're like, man, my stomach wasn't growling. See, here's the thing. Check it. When Jesus fasted, he didn't get hungrier for food. He got hungrier for God. What is our focus when we fast? Think there's a reward that you keep your eyes fixed on. Sometimes you, you know, there, there's this great C.S. Lewis thing where it says, isn't it um, kind of selfish or utilitarian or isn't it a mercenary thing to do the things of God for the sake of a reward? Have you ever wondered that? Okay, you're saying I should fast, um, but there's a reward. Jesus says there's a reward. Isn't that like self-serving? They say, I'm doing this in order to get the reward. Uh, and, and Lewis talks about there's a couple, couple kinds of rewards that we have to keep in mind, okay? So one, there's a reward that is completely unnatural to that thing which you're doing. For example, you don't fall in love with somebody for their money, Right? Because you would be called a gold digger. The reason why, why? Because money is not a natural consequence of love. So if you marry somebody for money, you are marrying them for mercenary reasons. However, marriage is a natural consequence, natural reward for love. So if you fall in love and you say, I want to marry that person, that's not being utilitarian or mercenary. Because it's a natural consequence, a natural reward of the very action with which you're engaged. In the same way, uh, when you go to school, uh, get good grades, get good grades, get good grades. What's your motivation? It is an improper motivation for you to get good grades just so I can get my $1,000 that parents are going to give to me. Because $1,000 has no connection with the actual studying. What kind of reward is a natural reward for studying? Getting a scholarship to college, learning the material, being the best at what you do, engineer that you can be. These are natural rewards, and so you study properly in order that you may gain these rewards. The same way in following God, there's a natural reward that comes with following Him. And then there's an unnatural reward. You don't follow God in order that you might make a lot of friends. You don't follow God in order that you might be rich and famous. You don't follow God in order that you might twist God's arm to give you a brand new mansion. That's not the reason why we do the things of God. The natural reward for following God is that we get God. And he asks, is that reward enough for you? When Jesus was fasting, he did not get more longing, hungry for food. He got more hungry for God. When we fast with our eyes fixed upon Jesus, this is the reward that we seek. Are you not satisfied with where you are with God? Do you want more from God in your relationship with Him, in your love for Him? Can I remind you again and again and again, there are no secret rules, no secret society of people who are tight with God. You will be as intimate with God as you want to be. It's not just missionaries. 
It's not just house church leaders. It's not just pastors. It's not just old people. You will be as intimate with God as you want to be. Is that reward good enough for you? I don't want you to press this illustration too far, but Elijah, our son, has really uh, found something that he loves in life, and it's this TV show called Paw Patrol. And so he loves watching the show, and he loves the different action figures. He wants Paw Patrol books, and he wants Paw Patrol figurines. And he has this one aunt and this one uncle who love to spoil him with the things that he wants. And so they bought this huge collection of Paw Patrol figurines. But his mother, my wife Olivia, being the voice of reason, said, you can't give that to him. Make him earn it. And so they said, okay, Elijah, we want to give all of this to you, but here's what you have to do. You need to go to school every time and not cry when you get dropped off. Okay? If you can do that, then you will get a new Paw Patrol toy, whether it be Chase or Marshall or whomever it might be. That's all I know. But <laughs> if you do it, you get it. And so Elijah says, all right, all right, all right. And so he gets really happy. He gets really excited. He goes to school. And every Sunday or every time this aunt and uncle see Elijah, they say, Elijah, did you cry? And he'll usually always say no, and then we'll, they'll ask us and say, you know, Elijah cried. You cannot give it to him today. But if he's right and he's telling the truth, then he gets a new Paw Patrol toy. And he's so excited and he's so happy. The limiting factor is not auntie and uncle because they want to pour more of Paw Patrol into Elijah's life. The limiting factor is him. It's up to him to have as much of the Paw Patrol as he wants. It's all up to him. You have a father in heaven who wants to give you all of himself. The limiting agent in your relationship with God is not him and his inability or his unwillingness to give. It's you and me. We will have as much of God as we want. Why? just as that aunt and uncle did that hard work to get the reward to be given out. Jesus did the hard work for you and for me. How hard was it? Okay, how hard was it? He's God, right? He's God. How difficult was it for him to do what he... Just six hours on a cross, that's it. He did the hard work that was so hard that the night before he was filled with anguish because all of hell and its demons were fighting against him so that he would crack. That's how hard it was. It was so hard that he wanted his three closest friends on earth to have a prayer meeting with him, but they too failed him and they fell asleep. He was so hard, so difficult, that when he prayed, he was sweating in anguish in that mess Mediterranean night and it was sweating so filled with anguish that his sweat became blood, that his blood vessels burst. It was so hard that he said, Father, if, if, if I could do it some other way, that it wouldn't take this, then I'll choose that option. But at the end of the day, I want to do what you want to do, not what I want to do. 
And he did that hard thing. And that next morning, he hung on the cross for your sins and for mine. If there was ever a hard work that Jesus did because his eyes were fixed, Hebrews says, on the reward. What was his reward? It wasn't some mercenary thing, the praise of men. It was us. We were his reward that caused him to do the hardest thing that any person who's ever breathed on this planet has ever could ever do. And he hung on the cross, and he bled, and he died in order that we might know what it is to have intimacy with God. That's our inheritance. You and I will be as intimate with God as we want to be. Arms are open wide, and he invites us in. Let's pray together. Every moment, one of our friends, Pastor Dave Lee in Chicago, says every moment, those few minutes after, you hear the word of God and the word is planted in you, depending on the soil of your heart, is going to determine whether that was okay. Some nice words to hear. Okay, that was a challenge to me. Versus something that's going to change our lives. Forever. What if? What if opening your heart to the discipline of fasting, to hunger for more of God, was what God was calling you to do in order for you to enter into a new place of spiritual breakthrough and intimacy with Him? Would you be willing to do it? If someone said to you, hey, I could promise you, I could give you intimacy with God, what price would you be willing to pay? Pay 10 bucks for it, 100 bucks for it, 1,000. Maybe if, if he said, you can be intimate with God for $10,000, take out a loan, and we pay that $10,000. What if, I'm not going to make any promises that Jesus doesn't make, but he does say that there is a reward from the Father that comes when we fast with our eyes fixed on him. What if, the next step in your relationship with God, the next step to spiritual breakthrough was to incorporate a habit of fasting, just one meal a week, just one meal. And during that time, without focusing on the food you're abstaining from, but on the Father that you're seeking, you spent an hour praying, reading the Word of God, saying, God, this much I want you. Maybe, just maybe, relationship with God will experience an unprecedented height, an unplumbed depth, intimacy with God. Would you be willing to take a step of faith for that? What you do in these next couple moments, the commitment that you do or do not make, it could very well be the door, which is either open or closed, into a new level of intimacy with our Father pray for a moment. I want to pray. I want to renew a commitment to fasting in a way that really seeks God. I want more of God in my life. I want more of Him in my life. I'm going to pray. I encourage you to pray for a couple moments. I'll pray for us and we'll continue. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, I have come on behalf of our people and more of you in our lives. We want to know what it is to know your embrace, to hear your voice clearly as we open up your word, to know the tangible presence of God as we pray, to experience the release of your anointing and power in order that our ministry would go to new levels of effectiveness and transformation. We want to know what it is to know the nearness of God and to feel your heartbeat. We can hear your voice calling us, leading us, guiding us, directing us into places of a more joyful and deeper rest in you. Lord, there's situations within our world. There's an election going to determine so much for our nation's future coming up. Lord, we want to pray that your right person would be established. There's a huge summit next week in Turkey It's going to, among other things, talk about the issue of terrorism where world leaders will meet. And and God, we want to seek your face and ask that your kingdom come through that summit. Your will be done on earth, in the Middle East, and all around as it is in heaven. Father, we pray that you would take us to a deeper depth and a higher height and that we would long for more of you in our lives. We know that you you want to meet with us. You want to pour into our lives. Would you help us to long for you? fraction of the way that you long for us. Help us, Lord. We love you because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray.